Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles now, that you'd open up our hearts and our minds, that you would make us attentive to your voice, and that in attending to your voice, that you might challenge us and shape us and mold us so that we might live as your faithful people in this world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So this evening, I want to talk to you a little bit about the relationship between Christ and the church. I want to, for you to consider a little bit of your own relationship to the church. You know, there's different ways in which I think we can approach uh, the body of Christ, the, the Christian community. For some of us, there can be kind of a tense relationship between us and the church. Back in 1998, Anne Rice, who's famously uh, known for writing these steamy Gothic and decidedly unchristian novels such as Interview with a Vampire, had this religious awakening and she converted to Christianity. And she switched from writing these kind of vampire, vampire-themed novels to writing Christian-themed novels like Christ Our Lord Out of Egypt. But then uh, a few years back, she posted these words on Facebook. She said this, for those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or being any part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years, I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. Now, Anne Rice, I think, says there's something that, something more strongly and maybe more articulately, uh, she says maybe what some of you have felt. Namely, you really like Jesus, but sometimes you have a difficult time with the church. I wonder if there's anybody out there who you say, you know, I, I like me Jesus, you know, but the church gives me some trouble. You know, I have a difficult time with the church. You know, studies will show and common sense will tell you that one of the main reasons why people don't embrace Christianity is not because they can't believe in God, but it's that they can't believe in, they cannot trust the church. You know, G.K. Chesterton put it like this. He said, by far the most powerful argument against Christianity are Christians. Or put it like this. If you ask people why they don't believe, sometimes you'll get arguments. You know, people have a lot, they have a lot of arguments sometimes about Christianity. But very often, if you will scratch below the surface, what you discover is that the real problem is not with God, it's not with Jesus, it's with the church. The church has hurt them. The church has let them down. They've been burned by the church. And maybe some of you are like that. You, you like Jesus, but you have a difficult time with the church. Now, maybe some of you in here, you're like, well, I don't feel like that at all. I, I love the church. The church has been a lifeblood for me. It's been my, my bread and butter. It has nourished my soul. I love the church. But some of you, you're just not there. It's been a, a difficult road for you, this relationship between you and the church. Now, some of us, maybe, you know, some of us love the church. Some of us uh, have difficulties with the church. But some of you, you're just ambivalent toward the church, C.S. Lewis, after he was converted to Christianity, had some of this ambivalence in his own life toward the church. Uh, he once said this in, in his little autobiography. He said, though I liked clergymen as I liked bears, <laughs> I liked clergymen as I liked bears, I had little wish to be in the church as in the zoo. It was to begin with a kind of collective collective. 
a wearisome get-together affair. I couldn't yet see how a, con a concern of that sort should have anything to do with one's spiritual life. To me, religion ought to have been a matter of good men praying alone or maybe meeting by twos or threes to talk of spiritual matters. And I wonder if any of you have ever experienced that. You just feel like, man, I, I, I just don't get the collective thing, the big church community thing. I can get together with ones and twos, but the whole, you know, singing thing, it's sort of wearisome for me. And it's just a challenge. It's just difficult. You know, one of the, the questions that many pastors across the United States are wondering right now is once we get through COVID and people have had this experience of watching church in your living rooms with your pajamas on, eating your pancakes and your bacon, how many people will actually return to church? And it's a real question. There's a, a huge percentage of people, studies are now showing, that are unlikely to ever walk back into the Christian community because for many people, they feel like, look, I, 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 there's a lot of things that are important to me in my life that I will prioritize in my life. I'll prioritize getting to work on time. I'll prioritize my exercise routine, my Pilates class, my yoga. Uh, my kids need to be in music and they need to be in dance and they need to get to soccer practice. All of these are important priorities, and maybe I can get to church. Maybe. Because you're sort of ambivalent about it. But what I want you to see this evening, and what I want you to see this morning, is that if you are in relationship with Jesus, you need to cherish, you need to value the church. What I want you to see tonight is that there is a vital, there is a living, there is an organic and an unbreakable connection between Jesus and the church. And we're going to see it in Colossians chapter 1. In fact, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at that question, who is Jesus? And what we saw two weeks ago is who Jesus is in relationship to God. A couple weeks ago, we saw that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Jesus is the fullest disclosure of God's true self. Jesus is full and true humanity, and he is full and true divinity. And then last week, we saw the relationship between Jesus and creation, Jesus, by virtue of his role as creator of all things and as redeemer of all things, Jesus is Lord over all things. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Jesus, who is sovereign over all, does not look at and declare mine. And so last week, we talked a little bit about Jesus's relationship to creation. But what we want to talk tonight about is the relationship between Jesus and the church. And listen to how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. He uses a metaphor to describe Jesus's relationship to the church. It's an evocative, it's an insightful metaphor. He puts it like this. He says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might have the first place. He says here that Jesus is the head of the body. Jesus relates uh, to the church the way your head relates to the rest of your body. And let me just put it like this. The way your head relates to the rest of your body is not incidental, is it? 
It is vital and it's living. And you can't have the head without also having the body. You know, some of, of, of you ladies, uh, you might be single and have, might have uh, attempted to do some online dating at one point in your life. Now, just imagine you meet some man on eHarmony and you look at his face and you think he looks incredible and you're really excited about him. You like his face, you like his head because you like what's going on in that brain. But then you go and you meet this guy on your first date and you walk up to him and you see his face, it looks great, but you can't stand his body. There's nothing about his body that you want. And so you suggest to him, you say, um, you know, I really love you and I want your head, but I don't want your body. Can we get a different kind of body? Would anyone here do that? And yet that's how many of us relate to the church and to Jesus. We say, Jesus, I like you. I like the head. I just don't like the body. And of course, you know, there is this dramatic difference between the beauty of the head that is Jesus and the ugliness of the body that is the church, right? And so there, there is a difference there, but, but there's this vital organic connection. You can't have one without the other and you can't follow Jesus without the church. And so what I want you to see from this metaphor are three things that we learn about Jesus's relationship to the church from this metaphor of the head and the body. And the first thing that I want you to see is that Jesus is the origin. He is the beginning of the church. You know, in the same way that your body did not just appear, the body you now inhabit began as a twinkle in your parents' eyes. And it took the mind and the imagination of someone else to bring you into being. And so too, it took the mind, it took the imagination of someone else, namely Christ, to bring into being the body of Christ, his church. And that's why right after Paul says that Christ is the head of the body, the church, the very next phrase he says is that he is the beginning. A New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, says that that word beginning is a little thin. It, it, really, it really could be translated that Jesus is the first cause. He is the originating source of the church. He is the very origin of the church's existence and being. And it's an arresting phrase. It's an arresting way to describe Jesus's relationship to the church because that's, this is the way many of the philosophers and the theologians and oftentimes the Bible itself talks about God's relationship to the created order. God is the first cause of all things. Uh, there is nothing that is in creation that was not called into being by the great source, by the great origin of all things that is God. And here he says that God is not only the origin of creation, God in Christ is also the origin. He is the beginning of the church. And we see this worked out in history in how Jesus starts his own earthly ministry. You know, the very first thing that Jesus does after he launches into his public ministry, he starts to build a church. He goes up to some disciples and starts gathering them around him and he starts building this nucleus. And how many disciples does Jesus choose? He chooses 12. And why 12? Well, because there was 12 tribes of Israel. 12 was the numerical value, kind of the symbolic number of the people of God. And in choosing 12, Jesus was saying, I am forming a new humanity, a new community around myself. In other words, the church was Jesus's idea. 
In fact, uh, there's this great little scene. Uh, Jesus is gathered with his disciples up in Caesarea Philippi. And uh, he says, who do men say that I am? And he says, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, well done. And then he says this, uh, you are uh, a small pebble, Peter, but on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus says, I am in the, I'm in the business. I am about the work of building the church. So for the last 2000 years, Jesus has been building. He has been growing. He has been forming a new humanity, a new people, the church. You know, now on the one hand, the church, of course, is a human institution, and we as a church have budgets and bylaws and we butt heads and we have some butt heads in the church. Sorry, that probably wasn't appropriate, but it's true. And, um, and we have politics and power struggles and there are corrupting influences within the church because the church is a human institution. Our church is, and the church has always been a human institution. And so it's always had these uh, aspects that are implicit within other human institutions. And so on the one level, the church is a human institution, but on a more profound level, the church is a living organism that Jesus Christ brought into being with his ministry that he inaugurated and that he has been growing. And that within... Even the walls of the institutional church, there has been growing these enclaves of living vital life with Jesus. There has been sometimes meeting in homes, sometimes underground, sometimes even on the grass in Sierra Madre. There has been these gatherings of people who have been made alive by God, who have love for Jesus and who have worked together to care for the unwanted and to feed hungry children and to start schools and to fight injustice and to share life together and meals together and to pray for one another and to worship together and to sing together and to write books and hymns and poetry and sermons. And it's happened on every continent and in different languages and in different cultures and among different classes of people, here Christ has been building his church because he is the beginning. He is the origin of the church. And listen, if Jesus launched the church, if the church is not simply a human institution, if it's, his, if, if it's Jesus's idea, if it was birthed in his imagination and in his mind, and if he worked to inaugurate the church, to bring it into being, then you and I cannot neglect the church. And we cannot minimize the value of the church. And we cannot... We cannot say that it's enough for me simply to follow Jesus on my own. No, Jesus inaugurated a community of people for you to share life with so that you could walk with Jesus together. And so this metaphor of the head, it implies number one, that Jesus is the origin. He is the beginning of the church. But secondly, I want you to see not only is Jesus the beginning of the church, Jesus is also the end of the church. And by end, I don't mean he's going to put a final end to it. He's going to stop it. What I mean is that Jesus is the telos. He is the ultimate destiny and goal of the church. And look at how he puts it back in the text. After he says that Christ is the head of the body, 
He, is the, he says he is the beginning, and then he says he is the firstborn from among the dead. He is the firstborn from out of the dead. This is, again, it's an arresting way to describe Jesus and his relationship to the church. You know, it says here that Jesus was the firstborn from among the dead. You know, I looked up uh, online this week and I learned that there have been studies done and by estimates, uh, there have been 100 billion people in the history of the world that have died. Now, of those 100 billion people that have died, almost all of us are going to be one of them, right? I mean, the stats on death are unbelievably strong. One out of one people die. Now, of course, there have been a handful of people out of those 100 billion that after being declared clinically dead have actually come back to life. And sometimes as a result of prayer, sometimes as a combination of prayer and uh, medical attention, people have, after being declared clinically dead, have come back to life again. But you know, when they come back to life, they really have only postponed death. And all of those people that have come back have eventually died again. And so all of the human race has been stuck underneath the power, this insistent, incessant power of death. All of humanity, except for one person. One person went into the grave and broke out of death and he came out on the other side. And that was Jesus of Nazareth who was raised physically and bodily in human history on the third day. And Paul declares here that Jesus' resurrection makes him the, the firstborn from among the dead. And we said last week that it's not simply the first in the line of a succession of people. Rather, it's the first in importance. He becomes the one who ultimately overturns death and darkness in his own resurrection. Jesus Christ took on death. He was in a fight with death and he was ultimately victorious. And his resurrection from the dead has been determinative for the rest of the created order. That one resurrection, Jesus's physical and bodily resurrection from the dead, ultimately will work itself out in all of creation. And later on in another letter that Paul writes, he says that Jesus's resurrection was the first fruits of the resurrection to come. Anybody here uh, miss those good old days at Costco? when you could go and you'd get free samples. It's like one of the great ways in which we're suffering during COVID-19. You go to Costco, you don't even get your free samples anymore. But if you can rack your memory back to the good old days, when you'd walk up to that nice lady and she'd give you in that little plastic cup with a little spoon, a little, a little taste of lasagna. And when you ate that thing and you were hungry and it satiated you just for a moment, it was just a foretaste of what was going to happen when you would ultimately buy all 40 pounds of that frozen stuff, right? <laughs> and so too, what Paul says is that the resurrection of Jesus was the first fruits. It was the advance of ultimately what would come for all of creation. Christ's resurrection would work out for all of those who die in Jesus Christ. 
all those who die with Christ, says Paul in Romans chapter six, will share in the resurrection of Christ. In other words, our future is not a future of disembodied bliss, sitting as disembodied souls on clouds playing harps. Our future is, is a physical, material, renewed body being raised where we can sing and dance and we can eat and drink and we can hug and embrace each other in the kingdom of God because we will share in the resurrection glory of Jesus. And so the end of the church, our future is, is for this community of redeemed, resurrected people. In other words, Jesus has given great hope for the church. Listen, Jesus has not called together a community of ideal people. He has not called together a community of perfect people. Just look around. Jesus has called together a community of broken, sinful, needy people. And the thing that unites all of us together is that all of us, every last one of us, myself included, am a broken, fallen person in need of great redemption. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ has come to redeem broken, fallen sinners. Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I, I'm like a great physician. Physicians don't come for those who are well. He comes for those who are sick. And Jesus says, I have come in order to rescue and redeem broken, fallen people. And by my grace, reach out and begin this new life in this new community. And by my grace, carry this new community, my body, the church, into this glorious future. Whatever begins in grace, ends in glory. Or as, she, or as John put it, one day, we, we don't know what we shall be, but we know this, that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Our bodies will be conformed to the glorious image of Jesus. And so let me just put it like this. If Jesus has not given up hope for the church, if Jesus has a destiny and a future and a telos and a goal for this broken, fallen sea of people that he's gathering from every tribe and nation and tongue and people, broken and fallen, if he has a future for us, if he has taken us on a journey of becoming like his son, if he has not given up hope on the church, then you and I cannot give up hope on the church. If Jesus is about the work of carrying us along toward this final end, then to be a part of the family of God, to be a part of the body of Christ means to join Jesus on this work of helping to serve and to nourish and to nurture and to build up the body of Christ and to have great hope in the body of Christ. You know, I have had some friends who were police officers and who've told me that one of the difficulties, one of the challenges of being a police officer is that you're kind of always interacting with uh, kind of the more seedy parts of society. You're interacting with crime and people are stealing and, and breaking into places and killing people and all this stuff. And, and you, he said to me, or my friends have told me that you can develop a jaded, cynical attitude about the human race if you're only seeing people doing bad things all the time. And I found that there is some parallel with that and being in vocational ministry. 
You know, oftentimes in church work, uh, you get exposed to some of the underbelly of the church life, some of the ugliness of being in church. Uh, Sometimes the pastor's kids are exposed to the ugliness of being in church. And you know, the, the, the effect of that can be jadedness and cynicism. But listen, we cannot give in to cynicism and jadedness about the family of God. Jesus has not become jaded and cynical about his church. Jesus is determined about his church. He is determined to bring us ultimately to our final end of sharing in his glory. We have a great hope and a great future. And if Jesus has that hope for us in the future, then we cannot give up hope on the church. We've got to keep participating in this journey of becoming something other than we are. So number one, we're seeing in this text that Jesus is the beginning of the church. He is the origin of the church. He called the church into being. Jesus' own resurrection, that is the telos. It's the end of the church. He's not given up hope on his church and nor can we. So Jesus is both the beginning and he is the end of the church. But what I want you to see is that Jesus is also in the middle In between the beginning and the end, Jesus is organically connected to the church. You know, our bodies are organically connected together. So that my fingers, you know, on one level, uh, we are composed of lots of different parts, right? You've got fingers and toes and eyes and ears and a mouth and a nose, Let's all do it together. Head, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. Come on. On one level, we are composed of a variety of different parts, but on a a much more profound level, we are an organic, connected whole. Our heads are not attached to our bodies by uh, stitches, you know, like uh, Frankenstein right? Our our heads are organically connected to our bodies. And what's fascinating is Christ here is said to be the head of the church. He is not ashamed to say that his life has been organically connected to your life and to my life. And our life has become organically connected to each other through our relationship with Jesus. In other words, when you enter into new life in Jesus, you automatically enter into life with his body. And there is no other way to enter into life with Jesus. You cannot have the head without the body. It's organically connected together. And as Jesus is organically connected to his body, Jesus deeply cares for his body. There is this striking incident in the book of Acts where, the, where, where Saul of Tarsus, who became the great apostle of love, Paul, he was on the road to Damascus and he meets Jesus on the road. And on that road, he was there to send off letters to have the church persecuted and put to death. And Jesus knocks him off his horse and on his butt and he's there lying there. And Jesus asks him this penetrating question. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul of Tarsus must have thought, wait, I'm not, God, I'm not persecuting you. I'm out going after these people that I don't like. And Jesus says, exactly, in as much as you've done it to them, you're doing it to me. 
When you speak ill of your brother or sister, you're speaking ill of Christ. When you dig into them and you don't forgive them and you are bitter and you're angry and you use mean-spirited words, you are doing that to Christ. When you, conversely, when you bring a meal to a brother or sister in need, when you care for the least of these, when you feed the hungry, you are caring for Christ. Jesus says, in as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brother, you've done it unto me. When we care for each other, it's as if we are caring for Jesus Christ. That is how organically connected Jesus is to his church. But listen, it's not just the case that when we care for each other, it's as if we're caring for Jesus because he is the head of this body. But Jesus as the head provides the primary care for his body. There's this beautiful text in Ephesians where it speaks about Christ's love for his church. And it says this, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but they nourish and they cherish it just as Christ does for the church. Now, of course, sometimes uh, we get frustrated with our bodies, don't we? Anybody here get, fr anybody feel frustrated with your body this week? You don't like the size or the shape of your body or the, you don't like the pains it's causing you. There's all kinds of things that are going wrong in your body. But you know, if you, if, if you, you, your head needs to direct some care towards your body. I can remember back when I was, um, uh, just dating Alicia, uh, my, my now sister-in-law, uh, she was dating this bodybuilder and my, my father-in-law had a jacuzzi. And so we would go down to the jacuzzi and go there and I would take off my shirt and the bodybuilder would take off his shirt. And I wouldn't feel very good about my body. And so I started to, you know, um, uh, my father-in-law actually bought me some protein shakes. <laughs> I think he felt sorry for me. I was hoping I might grow, maybe get bigger. And I tried to start working out. But of course, you know, I failed. And I went only so long and then I gave it up. And you, you can tell I got it back though. <laughs> but you know, the head directs you to do stuff to improve the body. And Jesus has given everything for the sake of his body. Jesus has entered into our pain. He has plunged himself into our shame and our guilt and our sin. He has given himself fully and unreservedly to redeem us from sin and darkness, to forgive us, to cleanse us, to wash us, to care for us. He has provided for us things all along the way. Think even about your short life and the little instances, the little glimmers of grace you have experienced that have carried you along in your life. You know, yeah, you can, I guess, uh, view your life as mere coincidences, but you can also view your story as a story that has been infused with God's gracious provision and gifts all along the way. Him caring for his body to nourish and sustain you and to carry you along. And so listen, if Jesus has given everything for you, he has given everything for his body. If Jesus has inaugurated this whole project of building a new family, if Jesus is taking us ultimately to our end, then we cannot neglect, we cannot de-emphasize, we cannot pull away from the body of Christ. We have got to invest ourselves in each other's lives in very practical and very real ways. 
ways where we are continuing to care for each other. We have got to continue to invest our works of service into the body of Christ. You know, earlier tonight, we invited you to serve the body of Christ to help us produce these services, to help us welcome guests. You know, uh, when we can finally meet back together after COVID, we're gonna continue to invite you to, to invest in the life of our children. We're gonna invite you to partner with us to serve out in our community. And let's together be a people who was ready and willing to invest in the body of Christ. And let's be a people who prioritize the body of Christ. You know, there, there are so many things we can prioritize in our life and we can neglect the church. Don't neglect the church. You cannot be a follower of Jesus and neglect his church. And then, you know, be patient with the body of Christ because Look, all of us have warts. We all have rough edges. We all have things that, you know, we disappoint each other. We frustrate, but we cannot walk away because of that. We've got to continue to invest in and love and serve the body that God has placed us in. Let's pray together. And let's just ask that God would help us to be that kind of community. Lord Jesus, we come to you now and we confess that you are our head, you are our leader, you are the real senior pastor of this church and we are your body. And we pray, oh God, that you would cultivate in us a deeper value, a greater love, more sacrificial investment in this body that you are forming together. I pray, oh God, that you would cultivate in us a deeper gratitude for the way in which our own lives have been nourished and sustained because of the parts that you have put in your body, the way you have used others to help us. And God, would you enable us to be a source of hope and encouragement and support for others within your family. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Form and shape us, we pray, O oh Jesus, into being your faithful community. And we ask this for your glory. Amen.